This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King-Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. And I'm Dr. Kristen Brennison, otherwise known as Hot Pink Tech. I'm an engineer and an educator and the Director of Professional Development for NIU STEAM. Our topic today is the women of Frankenstein. Our guests are author Kirsten White and 19th century British literature scholar Christine Brevelli O'Brien. In 2018, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein celebrated its 200th anniversary, and STEM Read celebrated by turning the story into a day-long interactive game for high school students. We paired the original novel with Kirsten White's 2018 novel, The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein. The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein reimagines the story from Elizabeth's point of view. In this version, she's not just a sweet companion for Victor and fodder for the monster. White's Elizabeth is clever, secretive, and willing to overlook more than a few murders, maimings, and animal autopsies to ensure her own survival. You gotta love a good animal autopsy. I love a good animal autopsy. And a maiming. You know, I had maimings right in there with it. There's not enough of those in fiction nowadays. No. So we picked Frankenstein because it's the mother of all science fiction books. The first time that an author thought seriously about the scientific research of the day and infused it into a wonderfully terrifying story. The book not only spawned a genre, it has been reimagined as everything from a stage play to countless film adaptations to a freaking breakfast cereal. Frankenberry! I love (laughs) Frankenberry! Frankenstein also set the tone for the genre. Science fiction authors have become science philosophers and ethicists, imagining all the possible futures that could have come about because of our innovation or our hubris. As science fiction has grown and evolved, we still see echoes of Frankenstein, of scientists pushing knowledge to the limits with great and terrible results, of scientists creating without fully understanding the impacts of their creation process, of scientists doing things that get Jeff Goldblum eaten by dinosaurs or turned into a man fly. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. Could you do that again with a Jeff Goldblum uh, <laughs> as a Jeff Goldblum impression? Oh gosh, I don't know if I. Your uh, your scientists were, yeah. were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. So, well, I don't know. But your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. That was the worst <laughs> Jeff Goldblum imitation. But you know what? You're not my co-host because you do a good Jeff Goldblum impression. I do leave Jeff Goldblum impressions off of my resume because it's not my strength. (laughs) I'm glad you took that off. That wasn't getting you any jobs. (laughs) And all of this is interesting because the story of Frankenstein came about when a wickedly smart teenage girl was cooped up with a couple of poets during a cold and dreary summer. On this episode of the STEM Read podcast, we'll talk to 19th century British literature scholar Christine Brevelli O'Brien about Mary Shelley, her upbringing, and her impact on science and literature. Then we'll talk to Kirsten White, author of The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein, The And I Darken Trilogy, and other great YA books. We'll discuss her writing process and find out how she breathed new life into Frankenstein by exploring the lives and machinations of the long-suffering women of the novel. Here's our interview with 19th century British literature scholar Christine Brevelli O'Brien. My name is Christine Brovelli O'Brien, and I have a PhD in 19th century British literature. Christine writes for the STEM Read blog, among other things. And when we started researching Frankenstein and really getting into the planning of the Frankenstein and the Dark Descent of Frankenstein event that we did with Kirsten White, Christine was very excited. And I was like, oh, you need to be... You need to be all over this. So I wanted Christine to come on the podcast and give us a little context for Frankenstein and why it's considered the first 
science fiction novel. Why are we still talking about Frankenstein 200 years after it was published? Why Frankenstein, I think, is the big question. There's many facets to that answer, too. But the biggest, I think, in conjunction with what we do with educators is that it is the first science fiction novel. It's not the first novel that talks about medicine, of course, but it is the first novel to envision what the future would be like um, if we don't keep keep ourselves in check during that discovery process. And I think what Mary Shelley was really getting at the heart of In Frankenstein was the ethics and morals and ideas about science and scientific invention. That is a core belief that stays with us, especially in the sciences. And in now here in the 200th anniversary of it, you have programs like MIT publishing annotated versions of Frankenstein. It underscores the relevancy of the novel and Mary Shelley's work to show that it really does hit at the heart of an ever-changing but ever-present key element of what we do as discoverers. Catch us up on who Mary Shelley was and how she came to write this book. Mary Shelley is the daughter of two very famous and rebellious authors at the time. Her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, was a very strong feminist writer, a very strong feminist leader of her time. And her probably her most popular book was The Vindication of the Rights of Women. And when she was publishing at the end of the 18th century, it was pretty significant that a woman had that type of voice. And we call her rebellious for that very reason, because it was still thought that women did not have a place in the general population. You had, they call it, in when you study 19th century history, the two spheres. You had the public and the private, and women were supposed to stay in their private sphere. And Mary Wollstonecraft broke out of that. Unfortunately, Mary Shelley never knew her mother, because her mother died just a few days after giving birth to Mary Shelley. But she still connected to her mother um, in in a very macabre way. A lot of people like to talk about the fact that she learned to do her letters by going to her mother's gravestone and tracing uh, the letters of her tomb. More so, she was influenced by her father. And they had an interesting, strained relationship. But he was a firm believer in women's education. And he had a home that was a coffee house of sorts where famous writers and scientists and inventors of the time could come and speak freely about their ideas that went against the grain of typical conversation that would happen where you really had to keep your wits about you and and be very prim and proper. So Mary was invited to these conversations. She was not told to leave the room. Her father let her and her step-siblings be there and be present for these conversations. And so she took note of that and absorbed a lot of science. And when she wrote Frankenstein and then republished it in 1831, she was including the current science that she had heard these men talking about. Yes, they were men. (laughs) She was usually one of the only women in the room, but she and her, her stepsister, her half-sister rather, were very much involved in the conversation. So that right there is significant. It's also significant that she was just a teenager, a young teenager. She was 18 when it was published. So the fact that a teenage mind was able to absorb and then articulate these ideas is extremely important too. But she, again, had that rebellious spirit. I think she could not control it because she got it from both sides of her family. Um, Very interesting woman. And she was traveling around Europe. And that's when her dad decided he couldn't take his liberalness that far when she was living unmarried. And she did marry the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley. When Mary was in these coffee houses and in these talks with the great thinkers of Mm -hmm. the day, what types of things would she have been hearing about? Mm -hmm. She would have been absorbing ideas and constructing her own reactions to discussions ranging from what Galvani was doing when he was electrocuting frogs to try to see if he could recreate movement to animate inanimate dead objects to the romantics with a capital R, the writers of the day like Percy Biss, who was a well-known poet, and his close friend Lord Byron, who was what we now think of as a rock and roll star. He was the celebrity of his time. He would have been all over social media and magazines if he was (laughs) alive today. But he was, you know, the heartthrob and 
very dramatic, but very important to literature and history. And so she was absorbing those ideas that the Romantics carried with them about nature. They were really involved in nature and how nature reacts to us and with us. And that idea of what we call now as modern thinkers, the pathetic fallacy, where we feel like if we're having a bad day, and it's gloomy outside. It's as if Mother Nature knew it and is giving us a bad day just because she knows. <laughs> We're down in dreary. And Byron was really the reflective poet of the day, the reflective writer. And he and Percy Biss Shelley were very much turning inward on themselves. So what Mary would have been doing was kind of coming up against these two dichotomies, the self and nature, but the hard science. And electricity was really taking off at the time in ways that it had not before. And she would have been thinking about this idea of what do we do if we can bring the dead back to life, kind of outsmarting Mother Nature, so to speak, which makes it a combination of science fiction as we think of it today is there's a human side to it. So let's talk a little bit about how she came to write the book then. She kind of runs off with mm-hmm. Shelley, right? Yes. So So what happened there? <laughs> well, she ran off with Shelley, who was married, and they had um, run off together with her half-sister Mary and Lord Byron, who were having an affair and had a child together. So it was a sort of entourage, and leaving England for the continent, as they called it, was very risque, but it's where they could be themselves. So you have a teenager, a couple of teenage girls running off with older men, and they traveled around through France, and they found themselves in Switzerland, which if you're readers of the original Frankenstein, you'll know that's where the book takes place. And they found themselves in a rental on a very dreary, dreary day. It was a summer of summer of discontent, I guess you could say. Uh, there was volcanic activity. There was not much sunlight. You couldn't get out and do the things that poets like to do of the time, run off in daffodil fields and <laughs> things like that, as Wordsworth would talk about. And so... When you're stuck indoors and there's not much to do, you have a group of thinkers, and I always imagine them getting a little edgy. Like, we got, we need some outlets for this, and we're all together, so let's have some fun. And so they created a challenge, and those who took up the challenge in particular were Mary Shelley, Byron, and Byron's personal doctor, Polidori, and they decided to have this contest about who could write the scariest ghost story. So it wasn't just a, what the heck, let's just play a party game, but more so let's keep ourselves occupied and let's use our talents. Mary ended up being one of two whom, who really, really focused and took the task at hand as a challenge. Byron and Shelley didn't even finish theirs, but Mary fretted about it. She couldn't sleep at night, and that's where that vision to her, she called it her spark, Again, what you see all throughout Frankenstein, that spark of imagining this this monster, not quite human, not quite not quite monster. And she saw him in sort of a dream vision, half asleep, half awake. And she realized after a few days that that is what she would write about. And I think it's really interesting because she and Polidori, who wrote The Vampire, which is the basis for uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, kind of came up with these two massively important stories in a very short period of time. A teenage girl has written the first science fiction novel. And so what happens once, once it's published? Well, she published it anonymously, which is very common for that time period. And, of course, no, everyone knew she was with Percy Bysshe Shelley, so they all thought he wrote it, of course, because how could a woman write something like this? She wasn't the first female novelist in England, but she definitely was the first female to write about this subject matter. And Percy did contribute edits and some rewrites to the book but it mostly was her writing and then when she came became public with it uh, she went public with her name it was it was received well but it wasn't the classic that we think of now you know it mostly took off in the theater district as a matter of fact because the very first play was adapted almost immediately after it was published and that's actually how far back it dates to us calling the creature Frankenstein because the stage adaptations called the creature Frankenstein, even though that's that's not his name. <laughs> but the book was consistently received enough so that it was it was republished with her name on it. And then in 1831, they her publisher asked for a second version of it, which she updated with current science, too. So initially, it was one of those where it didn't cause a big explosion for her. She wasn't seen as being capable of writing it herself. 
And so she had to push through those the stigma of a woman writing about science because, you know, heaven forbid a woman have thoughts about that. <laughs> How could her lady brain handle it? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> what were some of the impacts on the scientific community? The reception of Frankenstein by contemporary scientists of Mary Shelley was that it was actually a plausible idea, that they were really obsessed there in the late 1700s and the 1770s in particular with this idea of death and life. There was a lot of reviving of people when they called resurrectionism. And Mary's own mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, was actually revived after almost drowning, after falling off a bridge. And so scientists saw what Victor Frankenstein did as a very plausible activity in which to engage as a scientist. And it, there was no, it was not far-fetched for a seemingly obsessed student to start creating something like this after having been exposed to what they call pseudosciences. Now we call them quacks, but at the time, of course, it was <laughs> taken seriously until scientists were making more rational discoveries about electricity. And the contemporary scientists, as far as the science of the novel goes, bought into it. They didn't see it as science fiction. It was it was science. And using Galvani's reanimation of the frogs, which on a side note did actually cause a huge problem with the population of frogs, there were none after he was done with it. So, oh. yeah, and uh, that was a science. That was an environmental problem that he caused in the name of science. Uh, a lot of frogs got fried. A lot there. of frogs, yes. Hmm. And no one's really certain like, what happened to those frog corpses afterwards. But his his nephew took up his. <laughs> Wait, what might have happened to them? Now that's the story. That's a story that should have been told. Somebody should write that book. Galvani's frogs. Ooh. Okay, Stem Reed can take that yeah. up as, as an activity. But his nephew, Aldini, um, also delved into this idea of reanimation and was working with corpses. And at the time, you couldn't just go, you know, have bodies donated to you. They were very tied in with uh, religious beliefs. If if you donated your body to science, that you couldn't go to heaven, you'd be condemned to death uh, in hell and so forth in the afterlife. So people would um, sell bodies to get money, or you'd have your resurrectionists go dig up bodies, which I know is also something that Stem Reed has investigated a little bit. (laughs) The very interesting part of science that we don't think about. As a fundraiser, we've uh, (laughs) looked into that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) you got to earn a book here and there. Uh So with the resurrectionists, um, there were bodies just disappearing left and right. And so Aldini really spearheaded this idea that we can do this more ethically. And more humanely. And what he did, and I'm speaking very generally here, is pave the way to use electricity in a way that is able to keep people alive. For example, with pacemakers, the inventor of the pacemaker has gone on record as saying that was his biggest influence, Frankenstein. That spark of life when Victor actually gets the creature to open its eyes, those scary yellow eyes. One of the big ideas of this novel is what are the repercussions of of science? Are we responsible for our creations? And what is our responsibility towards the things then that our creations Mm -hmm. do? I'm glad you brought that up because I think that sometimes that aspect of the novel is overlooked in terms of should he do it. That was Oppenheimer's big regret do I create this bomb? And he did, and then he regretted it later. So a lot of times when when talking about this novel in a literary aspect, we think, oh, just because he has the means, do do we fulfill that obligation to create this invention? But yeah, Victor, I mean, his first reaction to seeing the creature come to life is hideous progeny, you know, what what have I done? And he runs, literally runs away. (laughs) So I think what it's asking scientists to do, the novel itself is asking scientists to think about what then and next, what happens next? And that really wasn't something that was brought to the forefront, as as I've mentioned. Mary was one of the first to do that, to really, I think, in a way, challenge great thinkers of the time. She's not, not condemning them, but it is sort of a trigger to, you know, think about what else is going to happen after that. So that gives us an idea of how it influenced science and maybe might have influenced scientific thinking, uh, everything from science ethics to the creation of the pacemaker. Now, what about literature and and science fiction? So, so what grew out of, what evolved from Frankenstein? 
the closest connection I would like to make for that is if you stay within the 19th century, Frankenstein and, of course, Polidori's vampire really set the stage for Victorian-era horror. Taking the everyday reality and mixing it up with a fantastical character like Dracula, like the creature we refer to as Frankenstein. It really allowed that to happen. It created a space for that to happen. These monster, classic monster stories as we think of. Again, without Mary creating that space, I'm sure someone would have stepped in and filled in the void. But it's just really fun to think about 200 years of science fiction. And I think she'd be really happy to see where it's gone (laughs) and how it's exploded and that there are disciplines dedicated to it. Right. And and there's so many echoes in popular science fiction Mm -hmm. now and have been through the years, right? You were telling me that Mm -hmm. even movies like The Terminator really have their roots in Frankenstein. They do, which is not something we'd necessarily think about right away. But anytime you bring in artificial intelligence, I think we have to give credit to Mary Shelley for creating the first AI out there. She created the first AI character. And with our new science, especially with engineering and technology, we can create these droids, these humanoids that kind of go do their own thing after they're created. They kind of go rogue, so to speak, and live their own lives. And we see that in the Terminator. We see that um, all over the place. Yeah, I think about Jurassic Park, too. To reanimate the dinosaurs. You know, that is a Mary Shelley idea. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, they go out of control. You can't control them. Yes. You can't control the life that you make. Exactly. That's beautifully (laughs) said, Jillian. Thank you. Even if you try. And I think that's one of the beauties of nature. And for me, the science fiction that I'm drawn to has a lot to do with nature, whether it's human nature, mother nature, and an idea of you can harness nature, but you can't control it. Well, interesting to think about how much of an influence this book has had on scientific and literary thinking. Mm -hmm. And it's exciting. And I really encourage readers who haven't read the original to to go back. And I'm not going to lie, it's a bit laborious at first. And, you know, (laughs) you got to get through Walton's letters, but it all comes back in the end. In Mary Shelley's use of that unreliable narrator by telling the story through letters and Victor's retelling, allows us to have books like Kirsten White's where you can come at it from a different point of view and she can embrace the spirit of Elizabeth Frankenstein. Looking at the original and then looking at the the retelling I think adds a whole whole different level to it and the depth of your experience is, is heightened. You just heard our interview with 19th century British literature scholar Christine Brevelli O'Brien. Up next is our interview with Kirsten White, author of The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein. So Kristen, it was interesting to get more information on Mary Shelley and hear about all of the scientific thinking she got to experience and how those real and really creepy experiments bled into her novel. To me, her story was almost more interesting than Victor's story. The real science of the day was definitely dark and strange. There were a lot of frog executions and cadaver shenanigans. And I know that when we started talking about Frankenstein, you weren't really all the way on board. You're like, yeah, it's been 200 years. That's uh, okay. (laughs) Could we wait 200 more years before we pick this book? But you know, even if the book sometimes can seem like it was written 200 years ago, I think there are really great things in it that you can pull out. And and even you love that angle of the unreliable narrator. I did. I came around to the story once you get past the letters and you start getting into the science and the questions that Victor's story poses and that idea of, is he really telling you everything? I did enjoy it. We did have our concerns on the STEM read team that teens would be on the uh, on the Kristen boat and might not connect with the novel the way we wanted them to. So we were looking for some other way, some other entry point that might bring the story to life. Enter The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein. 
There are a lot of things that I love about this book. It explores the holes and omissions in Victor's story and offers a much gorier version of the events and Victor's motivations. But it also paints Elizabeth as a complicated, calculating, and fully realized character. It offers a window into that history of science, medicine, and economics. At our field trip, high school students played the role of Elizabeth and completed a series of hands-on STEM challenges to help Victor discover his dark pursuits and decide whether it was worth so much bloodshed to continue being Victor's special friend. The students learned about the history of suturing and competed in a stitching relay race where they sewed up a lacerated banana. They solved math, logic, and mapping problems to track down Victor's lab in Ingolstadt. They learned about the history of body snatching for medical schools. They learned about the history of electricity and how it still inspires artists today. And they also completed their own circuits to light up the eyes of their own creatures. And they heard about toxic relationships and had to decide whether they would help or stop Victor in the end. We had a ton of fun at this event. You can see the highlight reel in our show notes. After the event, we sat down with Kirsten White to explore her pathway to writing, what she learned from rejection, and how she crafted her novel to be a conversation with Mary Shelley. Here's our interview with Kirsten White. Thank you for coming to NIU and being with us for The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein. And here on the STEM Read podcast, we're really interested in origin stories for authors. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you were like in school? Yeah, um, I was a good student. It was very important to me to be a good student um, and to follow all the rules. But I was also uh, very creative and I was very fortunate in that I had very sort of nurturing teachers, particularly in elementary school. I really enjoyed creative writing and they really encouraged me with that. In my region, there were some creative writing day camps for elementary school students and they would pick a couple students from every class and I got to go to those. So to me, writing was always a reality. It was always something that I could do and that I was encouraged to do. That's great. It's great to have a supportive environment like that. And you, uh, when you were speaking to the students at our uh, STEM Read field trip, you were talking about books that influenced you or that you were able to see yourself in as a child. What were some of those books? Um, the first one I, I feel like I really saw myself in was Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery. And um, I loved that book because I, I typically read fantasy, but in this book, was a girl who wanted to be the best in her class and it was very important to her to be the smartest and she was very ambitious but that was always balanced by how much she loved um, her adoptive family and how important they were to her and she was also very dreamy and sometimes messed things up because she was so dreamy and I really saw myself in that um, and really connected to that character so much and it just meant the world to me to be able to read about a character who I felt was so similar to myself. When did you really decide, I'm going to become an author? I always wanted to. Like, it was always my plan, even when it wasn't really a plan. Um, there was a career day in, like, second grade, and all the girls had to cut out nurses, and all the boys had to cut out firemen, which there's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> but I was like, I'm not going to put the hat on my nurse because she's not a nurse. She's a mom and a writer, and my teacher thought that was super cute. Um, <laughs> but that, to me, was always what I was going to do, and I wasn't very practical about it. Like, when I was in high school, I never tried to write full-length fiction. I only wrote poetry, and in college, I took one creative writing class. And again, I just wrote poetry in there. And so it wasn't until I had graduated from college and I did not have a job. And my husband was like, you need to write that book. You're always saying you're going to write. It was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. It took me a couple years to write my first novel and it was terrible. And then it was another couple of years of trying to figure out like, how does publishing work? How does the book get made? Like, what is the system? How do I want to go about this? So it was one of those things where it was always just this idea that I had in my head of what I was going to do, but I didn't really pursue the reality of it until I was in my early 20s. Now, I think you said that you were 27 when you published your first book. Yeah, I think it was 27 when the first book came out. Okay, when yeah. the first book came mm -hmm. out. So, so what was the pathway between deciding I'm going to do this and getting to that published book? Was it a, was it a straight route? <laughs> not, not really. Um, so, so the first book that I wrote was a middle grade novel. It took me about two years from start to finish. Um, I, had a, I had a baby who turned into a toddler, and then I had another baby. And my nesting process for the second baby was, I got to transcribe this whole book before he's born. <laughs> and then I started kind of very casually like looking into, how do you get an agent? How do you get published? And I was still very sort of like tentative about it. 
And then I read a little book called Twilight. You may be familiar with it. And it was honestly probably the first novel written specifically for teens that I had ever read. Because when I was a teenager, they did not have a young adult section. So I went straight from reading like Redwall to reading high fantasy, like David Eddings, Terry Brooks. And so um, I had just entirely skipped over any books aimed directly at teens. And when I read that, I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to write for teens. And so I um, wrote my first young adult novel and I got an agent for that novel. And I was so excited. I immediately wrote the sequel, which is a really bad idea. (laughs) You should never write the sequel to a book that hasn't sold yet. Uh, And when she went out on submission with that first book, I was bored. And so I wrote another book. Um, And that first book didn't sell, which meant that the second book also wouldn't sell, which meant that I now had three novels that I had written that would never be published. And and that's okay in retrospect. It was hard at the time. Um, It was a lot of rejection. And I kind of was at the point where I was like, well, I don't, maybe I am not going to be an author. But I had written this other book that was very different than the book that my agent signed me for. And the book that I written was Paranormalcy. And um, I was very nervous to send it to my agent because when she signed me, she specifically said, I don't like books with creatures. And Paranormalcy has everything in it. It has vampires and werewolves and shapeshifters and mermaids and I mean everything I threw in there and so I sent it to my agent sure that you know she had already failed to sell one book for me she was just gonna be like nah I'm I'm done with you (laughs) and uh, she loved it and because she loved it she was confident that it had broad appeal and we were very fortunate it sold at auction and so yeah so it was my fourth finished novel that was my first one that came out and I've written novels since then that haven't sold and I've written novels since then that have hit bestseller lists and it's just kind of you know, you write because you love it and you hope that at some point the market loves it too. <laughs> so is is there something that you've learned throughout that writing process, you know, from the time when you were like, I'm going to do this and until that, the rejections, the, you know, the almost published novels, what, what kind of message do you think that you'd like to tell your readers or other students about that process? Uh, one thing that I really learned is that no writing is ever a waste. It could be very easy to look at those first three novels or novels I've written since then that that have not sold and say like, well, that was a waste of my time. But I learn something from everything that I write, whether I learn um, something about writing itself or myself as a storyteller, or, you know, I do a ton of research on ancient Egypt and then that informs a later book that I write or my first two young adult novels that I wrote that didn't sell. I spent so much time with the world building and with thinking about that world that I took the elements that I really liked and I wrote an entirely different narrative with them and and that series was published Uh, and so for me it really is that that I learn something and I grow with everything that I write and if I'm not learning and growing as a writer if I'm stagnant that's not interesting to me and it's not going to be interesting to anyone else so I I try not to view any writing even if it doesn't work I try to view it not as a failure but as as progress as moving forward with myself as a writer. We really enjoyed The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein and we did a field trip based on it and several lesson plans so we were we were big you know Elizabeth heads, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so, Go team Elizabeth. Yeah. <laughs> so, what was your first experience like reading the original Frankenstein, and and when did you read it? What did it mean to you at the time? I honestly cannot remember when I first read it because I get asked this a lot, and I can't figure out if I read it in high school or if I read it in college. And I can't remember if I read it as a class assignment or I read it for fun. I'm pretty sure. I read it in college because I read Dracula as a school assignment. And then I was like, well, I want to read Frankenstein as well. And so then I read it on my own. But I'm not sure. It's been a while. Um, (laughs) But I had always loved the concept of Frankenstein. Um, One of my favorite books growing up was Frankenstein Moved In on the Fourth Floor, which actually has nothing to do with the classic Frankenstein. But (laughs) for whatever reason, that concept and even that word just stuck in my head. I mean, I dressed every single one of my toddlers up as Frankenstein for Halloween because all toddlers walk like Frankenstein's monster. Mm -hmm. So I just, it has always been my... my favorite classic, like if I had to pick a favorite classic, it, it would be between Frankenstein and Pride and Prejudice, just because I love I love the themes that Frankenstein explores. And I love how different it is than the concept that we have of Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster. The book is, it's very, very different. It's, it's more tragedy, I feel like, than science fiction or horror, um, particularly where the monster is concerned. So it's, it's just, it's always been one of those classics that I love and I have a real connection to, but at the same time always bothered me. Um, And it bothered me because of the female characters in it, because they're just, they're nothing. They're not interesting. They're barely on the page. When you wrote Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein, you, you've talked about it as being a conversation with Mary Shelley. So so what were, what was the conversation? What, what kind of 
questions did you have for her and and what did you really want to say back to her with your new book? I just, the thing that makes me sad about Mary Shelley is when you read the introductions to the original Frankenstein, there are two separate introductions. There's the introduction for the anonymously published 1818 version, and there's the introduction for the 1831 edition when Mary Shelley attached her name to it. Um, In 1818, Percy Shelley wrote the introduction, and he wrote it anonymously. But in it, he talks about how if people knew who else was writing that week on Lake Geneva, they would much rather read that stuff. (laughs) And so even in the introduction to Frankenstein, he's dismissing Mary. He's saying, if you knew Lord Byron and Percy Shelley were writing, like you'd be way more into that. No, we're not. Um, (laughs) And then when Mary wrote her own introduction, she talks at length about Percy. And she talks about how he always encouraged her to write, not because he thought she had any skill, but because he thought maybe someday she might potentially, and he wanted to see whether or not it was there. And it made me sad. It made me sad that even though she knew at that point, her book had impacted people and um, people knew about it. They were talking about it. They were producing plays of it. She still saw herself as secondary to Percy because that narrative was so prevalent in her life. And um, so I wanted to write a version of Frankenstein that explored similar themes, but but gave the agency back to the women and explored the ways in which dynamic and intelligent and fierce women are made to feel inferior and they're made to feel like secondary characters in their own lives. Because I read Mary Shelley's introduction and and I feel like she viewed herself as secondary in her own life to Percy, which, you know, makes me sad and makes me mad. And so that's, that was a conversation that I wanted to have with the original is pulling those narratives out and saying, you know, yes, you may have been made to feel like, like a, supporting player in your own life but you're not and you dedicated the book to people who felt like secondary characters I'd yeah to everyone made to feel like a side character in their own life right yeah just because that was important to me And and it always made me sad that that Mary Shelley who at 18 invented science fiction she was so brilliant and so ahead of her time still viewed herself as secondary to her to her husband and uh and I wanted I wanted to write a book exploring that. Initially, I actually thought I might write a retelling of Frankenstein centered around Mary herself. But once I started my research and really started delving into the text, I immediately saw Elizabeth Lavenza and I was like, oh, here's a woman who's surrounded by men who let people die around them because they don't care, which was, I felt very reflective of Mary Shelley's own life. So I felt in a way exploring Elizabeth Lavenza's story was another aspect to sort of bring that to light. And what were your thoughts on the original Victor and how was that reflected in your new book? I definitely view Victor as a very unreliable narrator. He glosses over things. He doesn't tell parts of the story. Um, He leaves a lot untold. Uh, And he views himself as a victim, even though he was the one who chose to do everything. He was the one who chose to create the creation. He was the one who chose to abandon it. He was the one who chose to go home. He was the one who chose not to come forward when Justine was framed for murder, even though he knew she didn't do it. He still views himself as a victim in his own narrative. And I actually really like that because there was so much room in there to tell another story. Because if you view Victor as an unreliable narrator, then you can look for the gaps in his story. You can look for the areas that he glossed over when he says, I went to charnel houses and graveyards and did other things too terrible to talk about. So we'll just move on. Like, okay, (laughs) what were you doing in those areas that were too terrible to talk about? about. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy unreliable narrators and I enjoy difficult narrators and difficult people. But yeah, I've never, I've never viewed Victor as a, as a victim. I, I view him as just a deeply irresponsible whiner. <laughs> right. Once he brings the creature to life, he just runs out it's of like, the house oh, for like two weeks. Terrible. Oh no, no, no. Then he has a fever. He has right. A fever. He has a fever for two weeks. That's his way of getting out of everything. Yeah. He's having a fever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't do my chores today. Oh, fever. Sorry. I to pay my mortgage. Oh, fever. fever. I'm sorry. I had a fever for the last two weeks. I don't remember anything that happened. Don't know what came over me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so Elizabeth is a very dynamic character in this, and she's very interesting, and, and she's unreliable herself mm-hmm. in some ways. So how did you go about creating the new Elizabeth? Well, she's so rarely on page in the original Frankenstein. And when she is, we only see her through Victor's point of view. And all she is to him is this perfect angelic companion. Um, That's her only role. He leaves for years at a time. And when he comes back, she is still just waiting to be his companion. And so I was like, well, you know, I could see how she would project that image to the world and she would be what the world wanted her to be as a survival mechanism. But if you're always pretending to be something, you know, what would that make you inside? And it it makes you secretive. It makes you manipulative. um, It makes you very cunning. And I feel like she's a very cunning person. And I really like exploring power dynamics in my writing. And I like exploring the way that women get power. And in my previous trilogy, the Anti-Darken trilogy, 
my main character, Lada, pursues it through very traditionally masculine means, through violence and through political power. Um, and I wanted to explore a very much more traditionally feminine pursuit of power um, through being what people expect of you as a means to an end. And I really related to Elizabeth. She is she's very deceptive. She's very morally gray. There's one scene where she's trying to find Victor and she's talking to this professor and she makes fun of him to his face and he starts to get offended and she immediately pivots and turns sweet and flatters him and he's confused but then he accepts it because that's what he is expecting to receive from a young woman and it was fun sort of getting to explore a woman who recognizes that power um, dynamic and takes advantage of it rather than necessarily being a victim to it. One of my favorite characters in the book, I think, is Mary. Mm-hmm. Mary's not in the original. Mm-hmm. So where did Mary come from? So I tried really hard to stick with the original, but one problem that I ran into is there are only three female characters in the original. There's uh, Madame Frankenstein, who dies, uh, Justine, and Elizabeth. As women, we know we don't exist in a vacuum, and our friendships and our allyships with other women are some of the most important ones that we have. And so I really wanted to introduce another woman into the narrative, and I was like, you know what, I totally can, because Victor would not have noticed her. She would not have mattered in his own personal narrative because she wasn't anything to him. And so she wasn't worth noticing. And so, of course, I picked a bookseller because why wouldn't I pick a bookseller? And I named her after Mary Shelley. She's not meant to be Mary Shelley, but I definitely named her after Mary Shelley. Um, Just to show another example of a woman reaching out to other women and, and helping each other and having those those intense relationships and friendships that women have with each other that are so valuable because especially in societies where women have so few rights like who else is going to look out for you but other women plus she was funny mm-hmm. <laughs> it was nice it was nice to have a character show up on page and be like wow you're all nuts yeah <laughs> what is happening yeah. here uh, go change elizabeth <laughs> yeah clearly you've been burning something down yeah um so it was fun it's always nice having those side characters that don't bear the burden of the narrative so they can come in and be a little bit of a a breathing space if you will they're mm-hmm. not they're not carrying that angst of the full frankenstein you know burden The economic aspects of the power relationships were really interesting, too, because so much of what Elizabeth does, so many of her choices are defined by the fact that she needs these people in order to have any money or any status or or any standing in the world of that time. So how did you set up that part of the story? Um, I looked into inheritance laws for the region at the time, um, and I looked into reasons why women would be committed to an insane asylum at the time, um, some of which included crying too much or trying to leave your husband. But it was very much inspired by Mary Shelley herself, because when Mary defied her father and got pregnant at 16, he disowned her. And so she had to stay with Percy Shelley, who was married to someone else at the time, because she had no other way of supporting herself. She wasn't allowed to work. No one would have hired her. And it wasn't until Percy died and she was able to inherit his inheritance and have the social standing of being a widow that she was able to be financially independent. And, you know, that's that's fascinating because it, it does trap so many people. And, you know, I see that in my own life. I see I see women who didn't finish college to support their husbands and then they had a bunch of children and stayed home raising their children and then they get divorced and you have these women who are in their late 30s or early 40s and they're having to start over from scratch or they stay in marriages where maybe they aren't happy because they have no other viable financial options. And it's very bleak. And it was far more bleak at the time um, where I was writing because women had so few options for supporting themselves. It's very oppressive and it's very um, restrictive and it's reflected in like, you know, the lacing up of the corset. Everything about you is bound and tightly restricted and you have to fit within these certain roles in order to be okay. So it's 200 years since the publication of the original Frankenstein. Why do you think that your book is is such an important book right now? Why do you think the message is really resonating with people? So I feel like the question of the original Frankenstein is what makes a monster? Like what goes into making a monster out of someone? Would the creature always have been a monster or did he become a monster because he was denied love, because he was denied a community, because people responded to him as though he were a monster so he became what they saw? The question that I wanted to explore is who makes a monster? Um, it's a question that's been weighing very heavily on me. If you if you look at the violence in our communities and in our country and you look at political systems that have traditionally been very oppressive to certain groups of people but not to others and that question of responsibility if there is 
a series of laws or a community where certain groups of people are victimized, if I am not a person that is victimized, but I benefit from those laws, I didn't make those laws, but I'm benefiting from them. And I feel like in doing that, am I supporting them? Am I allowing this to continue to happen? I feel like those are such timely questions. They're questions that don't go away um, because it can be very easy to be like, well, I'm not doing those specific bad things. So I don't have to worry about them because they're not happening to me. But if you're looking the other way, aren't you in a way supporting them? And there is no answer. I was talking to the kids and I said, you know, the central theme is who makes a monster? And one kid said, well, who does make a monster? I'm like, isn't that a great question? (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't think that Elizabeth is ultimately responsible for Victor's actions, but she certainly helped him. She certainly looked the other way and deliberately kept herself ignorant of the full extent of his actions in order to keep herself safe. And where is the line where you say it is no longer enough for me to be safe? I'm no longer going to support these things that are victimizing other people, even if it puts myself in jeopardy. And I think it was interesting that you brought up the fact that a teenage girl invented science fiction. And I think that was really powerful for a lot of the girls on our field trip to hear. What do you think the story of Frankenstein and your book and and other things that you're doing to further literature and literacy, what do you think you are doing to encourage teens in that way? I always try to center teen girls in my narratives just because I feel like so much of the world is telling them, be less, be quieter, be thinner, be less aggressive be less ambitious, Um, just stay over in the corner and look pretty and don't make any noise. People make fun of the things that teen girls like. They make fun of the things that teen girls are passionate about. And I feel like teen girls are amazing. They're so smart and they're kind of terrifying sometimes (laughs) in the best ways, but also very scary. And they just are so dynamic and so interesting. And so it's really important to me to craft narratives that celebrate that and that explore all of the ways that girls are fully realized people, that they're not just that one note side character who exists to be the girl, that they're allowed to be flawed and messy and dynamic and morally gray and make bad decisions and hopefully recover from those decisions. Um, but my hope would be that that teen girls read my books and realize they're being given permission to be themselves, whatever that means and however they go about that. On my website, which is just www.kirstenwhite.com, in the Frequently Asked Questions section, there is actually a teacher's and educator's guide to The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein. It was put together by my publisher, Random House, and it has sort of questions and ideas for further discussion so that if you do want to use The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein in your classroom as a companion to Frankenstein, there is already material developed for you, which I love. I'm like, you're making my book into homework. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. (laughs) And I love that because I very much meant it to be a companion to the original in that if you love Frankenstein and you read The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein after, you'll get so much out of it. And if you read The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein first, particularly for teen readers, my hope is that they will connect with these characters in this narrative and it will then guide them toward the original Frankenstein. And since they already have a connection to the narrative, It'll make it easier for them to get into, you know, a classic novel, which can be more challenging to read. I think we're, I think we're podcasted up. What do we say? Yeah. Well, thank you for being on the STEM Read podcast. Can I talk up STEM Read really fast? You talk up whatever you want to talk up. Um, This has been one of the most amazing experiences of my author career because you write in a vacuum and you write hoping that people will connect and then to come here and see hundreds of teens engage not only with my book but with Mary Shelley's original Frankenstein and the science and math and real world applications of those books is just like a dream come true. (laughs) It was so much fun and it's so wonderful to me to see educators who are coming up with such creative and dynamic ways to get kids reading, to get them to connect with books on a more thoughtful level. And I just really appreciate it because, you know, you always hope, like I hope some teen out there finds this and it becomes their favorite book. Like just one, I just need one teen for it to be their favorite book. And so then to come to days like this and just see an entire day of activities and celebrations based around combining stories with real world applications is really phenomenal. And I appreciate everything you guys do. Well, thank you. We have fun doing it. I mean, it starts with a fun book. That's the most important part of the entire day is finding a great book like yours that makes it all possible. So thank you for writing it. (laughs) 
just heard our interview with Kirsten White, author of The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein, the Anti-Darken Trilogy, and other great YA books. Now, I think it's interesting that we both talked about the the letters at the beginning of the book being kind of a slog fest, but that came up in both interviews as a way that Mary Shelley introduced that unreliable narrator and as the place where Kirsten White really got to sneak in between the cracks in the novel and create this really interesting companion novel. Frankenstein became more interesting after reading The Dark Descent because of those connections and filling in those holes and having those moments of, oh, so that's what really happened. When you look at both Frankenstein and The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein, you get this really interesting view into what the authors went through as they wrote it. I was really interested in Kirsten White's path to writing and how many times she had books rejected or books not sell, even after she was an established author. I think it's important to understand that productive struggle that writers go through, even as they move forward in their career. And I think it was also interesting when Kirsten talked about how those failures weren't wasted time, that everything she did either built a different world or she took aspects from a previous novel and worked that in to one that was successful. I like that Kirsten talked about her conversation with Mary Shelley and also looked at the theme of the first book, What Makes a Monster, and built on that. Who makes a monster? We see connections between the things she was wrestling with in the book to a lot of things that are going on today, both in terms of how does my action or inaction affect the lives of others and what responsibility do I need to take, but also with this idea of unreliable content, even from quote unquote medical experts like Victor Frankenstein. Taking the idea of unreliable narrator into current science articles and asking ourselves, who wrote these? What was their purpose? Are they telling us the whole story? Is the data being presented in a way that gives us the full picture? Or is data being left off to create a message that the narrator wants us to hear? This whole idea of becoming information literate, it helps us ask questions and decide, is this really truthful? Is this really based in fact? Or is there a story being constructed around the data and information that's being presented? That's a great exercise. That's a great use of a literary idea of an unreliable narrator transferring into this idea of media literacy. For more information on Kirsten White's path to publishing and her successes and failures along the way, you can actually listen to Kristen's new podcast, Failure Bites. She will have an interview with Kirsten White coming up in the next few weeks, and we will link to that from the STEM Read page. You can find the resources we created for both Frankenstein and The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein at stemread.com, and you can also learn about our upcoming field trips. This spring, we're welcoming Peter Brown, author of The Wild Robot, and Aaron Starmer, author of The Only Ones. If you can't make it to a field trip, but want to bring the experience back to your school or library, attend our STEM Read Summer Institute at Northern Illinois University on July 24th through 26th, 2019. If you want to be like Mary Shelley and learn about cutting-edge research from amazing STEM experts, come to our Science Fiction Writing Conference. Save the date for July 26th through 28th and watch stemread.com for announcements about keynotes, authors, and registrations. And finally, if you know some teens looking to live the book this summer, Stemread is hosting Quarantine the Summer Camp based on the dystopian novels by Lex Thomas. Lab visits, creative writing, costume design, economics, and so, so, so much more. Boy, we had more plugs than a power strip today, Kristen. (laughs) (laughs) Electricity joke. Shocking. (laughs) Call back to Frankenstein. (laughs) So... Special thanks to our guests, Kirsten White and Christine Brevelli O'Brien, and thanks to our friends at Random House for helping to make Kirsten's visit to NIU possible. The STEM Read podcast is now available on Stitcher, Google Play, and basically anywhere that podcasts are available. Enjoy us on so many more platforms. Subscribe and leave a comment. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. The STEM Read podcast is produced in collaboration with WNIJ. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.